0: Welcome
1: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
1: And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we are going to be exploring a ghost light of astronomy. So in the past, we've done episodes about things like the Will of the Wisp, right? You remember that one, Robert? Oh, yes. that was Strange lights in the wood. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And the thing about things like the Will of the Wisp is you have so many sightings of it over the years. People claim they see a light over the marsh or a light in the swamp or something like that, um, that you have to assume it's not just people making stuff up. Somebody at some point really did see something. But obviously, we don't think it's a ghost or a spirit or a a malevolent blacksmith who died in the swamp and now wants to lead people off of cliffs and into quicksand. Uh, Those stories are pretty great. But you have to assume
0: something is there, right? Well, something is there. The the woods are are filled with various somethings. I Mm. always come back to the star jelly example. Right. Uh, the, The idea that there's a shooting star and someone says, hey, I think there's a uh, there's a meteorite out there in the woods. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go find it. And then they start going out, they start looking around, poking around uh, in a place that they have passing familiarity with but have no real expertise. And then as they're poking around, they find something strange to them, some sort of uh, gooey substance. And it it it's it's probably, I mean it it certainly is some sort of natural occurring Ooze, mm-hmm. you know, it, maybe it's frog there, there, there's eggs. There's some or, goos out there. Yeah, there, there's a lot of oozy stuff in the woods if you poke around enough, and that's what they find. But uh-huh. then they they think this is the thing. This yeah. is the the goo that fell from the sky, and and so I, I think there, uh, there there's a, there's certainly a case to be made. And I imagine I discussed this in the Will of the Wisp episode, and we, we both discussed this that we notice something. We have no immediate explanation for it. Mm -hmm. But then if we have some sort of uh, uh, predominant theory to tie into it or some bit of uh, myth or folklore, then it can take on a life of its own.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then with a lot of this stuff, you do actually have to wonder about it in ways that you, you feel disinclined to because like with the Will of the Wisp, there are so many reports over the years you think, well, people had to be seeing some kind of light. We don't know what it was. We think there was a materialistic explanation for it, but we mm-hmm. don't know what it was, but there must have been something. Then again, how often are people seeing Will-o'-the-Wisp today? What, where did all the sightings go? Yeah, That's kind of a strange question. If people really were seeing something, how come they don't seem to be seeing it with nearly the same frequency
0: anymore? And if you're if you're intrigued by that question, uh, you should check out our Will-o'-the-Wisp episode. We'll include a, a, a link to it on the landing page for this episode at stufftobillyourmind.com.
1: But today we want to focus on a totally different type of ghost light, uh, one of the most interesting elusive lights in the history of science. And this is not something that you would see in the marsh or uh, this fickle, unexplained light in the swamp. This is a fickle, unexplained light that astronomers have claimed to see through the vast reaches of outer space on the surface of another planet.
0: Now, to be clear, we're not talking about uh, seeing it, just gazing up into the sky and seeing it. We're talking about using a telescope. Right, because obviously
1: planets other than – I don't know if you call the moon a planet. Uh, things out there other than the moon and the
0: sun uh, resolve to a kind of point-like uh, light source for the naked eye. right? And, and of course, we're all familiar with the various strange lights one can observe in the sky uh, and then attribute to any number of, uh, of natural or, or paranormal uh, causes.
1: Yeah, we're not talking about UFO. Or anything like that, we're going to be looking at a planet in our solar system. So, I want to start off this mystery hunt by introducing you to a 17th century Italian astronomer, and his name was Giovanni Battista Riccioli. He lived to 1598 to 1671, and Riccioli was a Catholic priest and an astronomer working in the generation after Galileo. So this was a great time of innovation and progress in astronomy, right? So you've had Galileo's uh, strong case made for the Copernican cosmology, right? And, and you've had Galileo improving telescope optics. And, and so the people working at this time to peer into the night sky had a lot of new ideas and a lot of new technology available to them.
0: Yeah, better able to see and model Uh, our observable universe. Exactly. Riccioli was also
1: a very important lunar astronomer, and he made detailed maps of the Earth-facing side of our moon. As we know, the moon is tidally locked with planet Earth, so we always see the same side of the moon, and that side has a bunch of uh, topographical features like seas and craters. And so a lot of the names of the features on the surface of the moon come from Riccioli's original nomenclature, like the Sea of Tranquility and so forth. But on January 9th, 1643, Riccioli was examining the planet Venus through a telescope when it was in its crescent phase. So what does it mean for Venus to be in a crescent phase? The easiest point of comparison for this would be our moon, right, which goes through phases of its own. You've got full moon, gibbous, crescent, new moon. Uh, And of course, the moon orbits around the Earth, and as it does – It's always day on the side of the moon facing the sun and night on the side of the moon facing away from the sun. And so the type of moon we see depends on how much of the day versus night side of the moon we see facing the earth. So when the moon is between the earth and the sun, we're looking at the dark nighttime side of the moon and we get a new moon. And when the moon is on the opposite side of the earth from the sun, we're seeing the bright daytime side of the moon. So we get a full moon. We're always looking at the same side of the moon, but it – but. Sometimes it's day, sometimes it's night on that side that we can see. Uh, and then, of course, in between those phases, there, there are crescents and stuff like that. So a crescent moon happens when the half of the moon facing us contains mostly the moon's night side and then a little sliver of the lit-up day side. Now, of course, Venus isn't orbiting Earth, right? So the timing of these phases is somewhat different, but the same basic principles apply. Venus orbits the sun on a different schedule than we do. So when Venus is visible, sometimes the side facing us is mostly the bright daytime side – which reflects a lot of sunlight and looks very bright in the sky. And other times when Venus comes sort of between the Earth and the sun, as you can imagine, if you picture this, the Venus orbits inside the Earth's orbit, so it sort of comes between the Earth and the sun. The side facing us is mostly or entirely the darkened nighttime side of Venus that's facing away from the sun. And Robert, I bet you've read about this before, but of course, the, the phases of Venus play a role in the history of establishing how the solar system works. Right? Like this was a point of contention for Galileo and and his critics during during the time he was alive.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is this this all makes for a, a major advancement in just celestial mechanics, just understanding how. The the planets in our solar system are moving exactly because the first time we actually know of that the phases of Venus that seeing it as
1: so, sort of more darkened or more or more bright and more daytime side uh, the first time these phases were observed through a telescope and described was by Galileo and this was in the early 1600s and at the time the phases of Venus were more than a curiosity they were a kind of brutal line of evidence against the Ptolemaic geocentric model of the universe. And the reason for this is that Galileo showed with the telescope you could look at Venus and that it had phases just like our moon. But he observed that unlike our moon, Venus had a full phase when it was roughly in the same direction in the sky as the sun. So think about that. You're looking toward Venus and it's in – pretty much the same direction as the sun, but the, the side we can see of it is all lit up and bright. The moon's never like that. When the moon's in the same direction as the sun, the side of it we can see is dark. So if all of the planets and the sun went around the Earth, how would it be possible for Venus to appear full to us, lit up and daytime side, when it's in the same
0: direction as the sun? It couldn't. We're forced to, um, to reevaluate reevaluate uh, the entire structure of our, of our solar system. Exactly. Yeah. So what this showed was that Venus,
1: because it showed a full phase at the same time that it was in the same direction as the sun, it couldn't be between the Earth and the sun. It had to be on the other side of the sun from us, which meant that Venus was not orbiting Earth. It was orbiting the sun. And so Galileo first published this argument in his 1613 Letters on Sunspots, which was a sort of series of letters that he turned into a pamphlet and which turned out to be the first place Galileo actually officially endorsed the Copernican model of the solar system in which the planets go around the sun instead of everything going around the earth.
0: And of course, we all know that this was kind of a – this was rather a controversial theory at the time. It uh, uh, it was not well received by, uh, by some powerful individuals.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean this put Galileo on course to have extreme conflicts with both the scientific and religious hierarchies of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, people forget that it wasn't just the church that was persecuting Galileo. I mean a lot of his scientific colleagues – just thought he was wrong for reasoning, you know, for reasons of their own.
0: Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of people that were were very invested in the previous model. He's mm-hmm. really uh, changed everything. Whether you were looking up at the the stars with a with a with a more of a scientific uh, mindset or a purely religious one, exactly. Uh, but anyway, so when an astronomer looks at
1: Venus in its crescent phase they're seeing mostly the night side of Venus, right? And so you've got this sliver of daytime that's separated by what's known as the Terminator line. The Terminator line is the boundary between the night side and the day side on the surface of a planet. And if you've never seen this, uh, it it can be very haunting, like if you view the Terminator line on Earth from the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. There are videos of this you can look up online where the, the, the station is rapidly orbiting the Earth, you see the ground beneath passing along, and it's the daytime side of the planet, and suddenly this curtain of dark just sweeps over the face of the planet yeah. uh, it's it's kind of terrifying to see actually, but also very beautiful it's it's worth looking up
0: all right so uh, so we're looking up at the the night side of Venus here mm-hmm. uh, gazing into the dark, just into the dark on another planet, right. What is the curious incident of uh, the Venus in the night? <laughs>
1: Uh, So on that January evening, 1643, Riccioli is looking at Venus through his telescope in this crescent phase where there's a small crescent limb of light and there's the Terminator line and most of Venus should be dark. Uh, The crescent portion was at roughly 30 percent of the planet when when Riccioli was looking at it. Now, when you look at Venus in a crescent phase like this, the nighttime side of the planet is supposed to be – completely invisible. It's so dark compared to the brightly lit up crescent of the daytime side that you shouldn't be able to see it at all. The daytime sliver of the planet should be like a bright melon rind floating in space by itself with nothing else there. But when Riccioli looked at it that January evening in 1643, something was not right. Instead of a bright crescent and an invisible nighttime side – Riccioli believed he saw something startling, a very faint glow coming from the dark side of Venus. The side of Venus where it was currently nighttime appeared to be ever so faintly shining gray light into space. And Riccioli gave this glow a name. He called it the Ashen Light of Venus. Spooky, huh?
0: Yeah, it has a it has it certainly has a an ominous ring to it. Yeah. It it's funny how if you just give something a really
1: good name, it'll end up getting a lot more attention than something that doesn't have a good name. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and I think that's probably the case here. The Ashen Light, I think, maybe gets more attention from amateur astronomers trying to find it and stuff like that than a similar observation would be if it was just called something very mundane.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a uh like like a, a new metal album from uh uh, from the early 2000s, so people were, were were like, "Yeah, let's look for that ashen light."
1: I'm pretty sure there is a is a metal band called Ashen Light. <laughs> you just know it happens, right? Yeah. It's like no, there's nothing left. The metal bands have scoured the earth. <laughs> it's like going through a post-apocalyptic wasteland that's been picked clean of every bit of canned food and <laughs> ammunition and everything you think you might want. If there's an idea or an ordering of words that sounds cool, it has been scavenged by a metal band in Ohio somewhere.
0: I don't know. I have a feeling that before we make it through this, this episode, we'll have found something that uh, some fledgling metal band can latch onto and embrace as their name.
1: But anyway, the ashen light itself. So ever since Riccioli's original sighting, other astronomers, both professional and amateur, have been looking for the ashen light. And a lot have claimed to see it, but many others have looked when it should be visible and found nothing. So this controversy exists. Does the ashen light really exist? And if it does exist, What is it? What is making the nighttime side of Venus
0: glow? On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we will discuss uh, subsequent sightings or claims of sightings of the ashen light and uh, some ideas about just what it could be. All right, we're back.
1: So we've been discussing Giovanni Battista Riccioli's original sighting of what he thought was the ashen light on the night side of Venus in 1643. And here's how he described it. So he said it appears to be a Dull, faint glow, some sort of gray, somewhat like Earth shine on the dark side of the Moon. Now what is Earth shine? That's when the moon is in a crescent phase, meaning most of the moon's sunlit day side is facing away from Earth and most of the moon's darkened night side is facing toward Earth. And light from the Earth shines on the nighttime side of the Moon to produce a soft gray, glowing reflection but the ashen light is allegedly even fainter than the earth shine on the moon because we know the earth shine on the moon exists we've got evidence of that Uh, the, the ashen light is still controversial So you've got all these claims of sightings of this dull brownish or copper or gray light on the other side of Venus. Now, where do some of these sightings come from? Uh, One of them was by William Durham in 1714. So that was apparently the next sighting after Riccioli. Uh, 1714, the English natural philosopher William Durham was observing Venus through a telescope and he called the light a dull, rusty color. Then you had actually a big name in the history of astronomy, the German-born British astronomer, Sir William Herschel. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Major name there. Uh, so he lived 1738 to
1: 1822. And Herschel was the discoverer of Uranus in 1781, which was extremely significant because I think a lot of people don't really it, – it's got a, a mythological name, right? Like the other planets. So mm-hmm. if, A lot of times I think people assume that Uranus was known about by – the people who believed in the god uranus uh, or uranus i i guess however you say it
0: uh, both both are uh, correct just one's
1: more funny so let's stick with uranus but yeah the uranus was actually discovered in 1781, it was, this was extremely significant because it was this, the first discovery of a new solar system planet since ancient times. The ancients had been able, uh, even before telescopes, to see planets like Jupiter with the naked eye.
0: So to be clear, at this point, we've, we've already established that it's not just one individual who saw it. And it's not just uh, – and, 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 and also we're talking about like noted astronomers of, of their day here. Uh, yeah. not mere amateurs who just happened to pick up a telescope and and gaze hopefully up at Venus to see what they could see.
1: No, th- these were respected astronomers and observers of the sky. Th- these are people who, uh, we can talk about this more in a minute, but they're people who you wouldn't expect to be hoaxing. You mm-hmm. know, It's not like somebody is just like, oh, yeah, 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 I saw a Will-o'-the-Wisp in the swamp. Yeah, it was great.
0: But then to be clear too, whereas the Will-o- Will-o'-the-Wisp already has like supernatural connotations to mm-hmm. it. This was more of a, a purely scientific observation without getting into some of the possible reasons that could be attached to it. Uh, just gazing at another planetary body and, and and seeing some sort of illumination or seeing just anything mm-hmm. any kind of phenomena that they could not be easily explained. I mean that's kind of par for the course of gazing up at other planets.
1: I mean I would be shocked if over the years somebody at some point didn't uh, claim that the ashen light was caused by I don't know the fires of hell burning on the surface of Venus where all the damned and and heretics went
0: yeah I mean, just think of Herschel, for example, here. Mm. Like, which is the the crazier thing? Which is the bigger moment in his life? Oh, yeah, I saw some this light that this other guy was talking about. I saw it on on the, the dark side of Venus. Right. Versus I've discovered a new planet. Yeah, he did. There didn't, is a new planet. <laughs>
1: exactly. That's a good point. He didn't need to be like attention seeking or yeah. anything. Uh, there's no reason really for Herschel to claim to see this without actually seeing it. Though, of course, he could be mistaken about seeing it. Right.
0: And, and we're discussing it. In hindsight, uh, the the ashen light is more of a mystery, yeah. Versus the this, the the awe that would have been uh, associated with discovering a new planet, because like you say, we've known of of Uranus our entire lives. It's just it's one of the planets you memorize, mm-hmm. and we often fall into the trap of just thinking that humans have known about it for ages. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, so another observer in the 19th century Thomas William Webb in 1878 he was a British astronomer he was a reverend and he claimed he saw the light in 1878 on January 31st with a 238 millimeter reflector so a you know, mirror based telescope uh, and he writes quote on January 31st after having many times looked for it in vain in former years I saw it without specially thinking about it with powers of about 90 and 212 on my point." .38 inch or 200, 238 millimeter mirror coming out at intervals rather paler and browner than the twilight sky and equally visible when the bright crescent was hidden by a field bar. Now, this field bar, or uh, sometimes called an occulting bar, would be a device that essentially blocks something bright so that you can see dimmer things better. In this case, it would block out the crescent on Venus because that's the daytime side, it's very bright, and that would allow you to see whether there's something visible on the nighttime side by eliminating the glare.
0: Oh, and I also want to point out for anyone who latched onto the fact that this guy was a, a reverend, um, it, a number of these sort of gentlemen scientists of the of the day uh, uh, were also religious individuals as well. So that's not really uh, that uncommon.
1: Oh yeah, especially in the history of astronomy, you see tons of astronomers who were affiliated with, for example, the Catholic Church yeah. or with the Church of England or something like that. Another astronomer named C.V. Zinger of Prague said he observed the ghost light of Venus in January 1883 and that the disk of the planet was, quote, splendidly visible. The most important feature of the observation was the ring that I could detect all round the disk, dark part and crescent, of brownish-red color, more pronounced on the illuminated side than on the dark part of the limb, but of a peculiar coppery hue. And then, of course, there were many reported sightings in the 20th century, a bunch of sightings in 1953 with independent observers claiming to see the light at the same time in different locations. Uh, there were also a number of alleged sightings in 1956 and 57. Uh, also, I think I read about sightings in 1940. And I think on all, in all these years I mentioned, there were uh, sightings on consecutive nights reported to the British Astronomical Association.
0: But already we can see that if something is occurring, if there actually is a light there, mm-hmm. it's not it's not there all the time.
1: Right. Yeah. So this is something that's going to contribute to the mystery and mm-hmm. maybe help us reason about if it really exists, what it is. Um now you may be noticing so far that we're all talking about visual sightings, not about capturing images of it. Now that'll that'll play into our discussion in a minute. Just to mention a couple more sightings real quick. Um Dale Cruickshank, a planetary scientist at NASA Ames Research Center, and William K. Hartman, another planetary scientist, they observed Venus at inferior conjunction. Now, that conjunction is when planets line up in a line. So inferior conjunction would be when the Earth, Venus, and the sun uh, line up together with Venus on the same side of the sun as the Earth. I guess obviously it would have to be on the same side of the sun as the Earth if we're uh, observing it.
0: Now, the the, uh, the the thing here that I'm sure is jumping out at everyone though, as we mention these dates, is that, that none of these dates are particularly recent, and it, it's it's easy to just assume that okay, as 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 our, our technology increases, mm-hmm. as our ability to view and capture images of Venus increases, if sightings go down then uh, that's that's a huge red flag.
1: It absolutely is. That's a very good point and something that other astronomers uh, we, we will talk about later in the episode have pointed out. But yeah, it seems that while there have been all these numbers of sightings, Sightings apparently get more rare as our ability to capture faint images with astronomical equipment becomes better. Uh, So uh, Dale Dale Cruikshank and William Hartman that I mentioned a minute ago, they did not capture an image of it. They drew an image of it based Mm -hmm. on their visual observations. Um, They said that the circle of the disk within the ring of light glowed a kind of dull brown color, and they said that this was a different color from the blue sky behind the planet and that the color difference seemed to be strongest near the crescent. And so I added an illustration of what they think they saw, Robert. Now, it looks kind of like – There's a bright ring and then inside it, there's just a slight, slight hue of brown, right?
0: Right. And I'll try to include this image on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com so other people can can see what we're talking about as well.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Just one more alleged sighting, the English astronomer Sir Patrick Moore, who passed away, unfortunately, in 2012. He claimed to have seen the ashen light many times throughout his career, including a sighting in 1980 that he regarded as sort of unmistakable and which he described as looking like Earth shine on the moon. Now, despite all of these claims of observations, as we've been discussing, there is emerging a pattern of like uh, questions that somebody skeptical of this phenomenon should should, should be asking, right? Uh, the British astronomers, Dr. Paul Abel and Pete Lawrence, writing for BBC Sky at Night magazine, write about how part of the problem with the ashen light is that all the claimed sightings over the years have just been people claiming to see it directly with their eyes mm-hmm. through the eyepiece of the telescope. And no one has ever captured a good really unmistakable photo or digital image of the glow. And they discuss how lots of astronomers have searched for the glow over the years and never been able to see it despite earnest attempts many, many years in a row. For example, the famous American astronomer Edward Emerson Barnard tried to see it, but he never could. And the authors themselves at the time of writing claim they've never been able to see the ashen light.
0: Yeah, all you have here is observation data. You have no like like hard measurements of it. Based, uh, I mean, besides what can be made with the human eye and then recorded, which opens it up to a number of different errors in cognition and memory mm-hmm. encoding that can occur. And really, you have to re- realize too here that like most people that are looking at Venus do not see it. Only yeah. some people are seeing it. Some people are arguably good at seeing it, whereas others are are less skilled at seeing the ashen light.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, to be fair to proponents of the ashen light, it's it seems to be part of the phenomenon if it is real that it is infrequent, like yes. it only appears at certain times and we could discuss later what could cause that if it really is a is an actual glow coming from the planet and not just a trick of the eye. Yeah. Uh, So uh, I guess before we get into explaining what it could be if it is real, we should explain what could cause all these sightings if it is not real. One of the things you always have to consider, of course, is the possibility of a hoax. But that really doesn't seem very likely to me in this case because you have got so many reports from very apparently serious people over the years – like this wasn't a ghost reported by some drunk high schoolers in in a swamp or something.
0: No, but but I think it is important to realize that seeing a UFO whilst drunk in the swamp mm-hmm. is exactly the kind of thing that a that a that a, that a non scientist uh, might see. Mm-hmm. But seeing an astronomical detail that other experts have reported over the years, mm-hmm. I mean that's the kind of thing that an astronomical observer might uh, want to see. Right. You know? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I
1: certainly think that they could the people seeing it could be mistaken. Well, I was gonna mm-hmm. mention that in a second, but I, I'm trying to rule I don't think it's a deliberate hoax. No, that that no. seems like it doesn't fit. Uh you know, why would William Herschel be participating in a deliberate hoax and all these different people over the years. It it just doesn't – does not seem like a good uh, explanation to call this willful misrepresentation. Now, on the other hand, observer error is a very strong candidate as as you're talking about. Abel and Lawrence write in their article, quote, It's reasonable to suppose that under certain conditions, the brilliant crescent of Venus combined with poor seeing – tricks the human eye into thinking it can see the night side of Venus when in reality it is not visible. Now we've talked before about different kinds of optical illusions on the show, and a very common kind of optical illusion is a kind of completion effect of mm-hmm. the eye. Right, you see part of a figure, and the brain knows what the rest of the figure should look like and kind of sees it.
0: Yeah, because our brain, our our, our vision is not a, a camera or a, a video recording device. No, our vision's cognitive. Yeah, it is a cognitive uh, process, and and therefore it's not just uh, our brains are not just seeing what we're seeing. Our brains are. Are forming the picture of the the world that our eyes are helping us to uh, to take in.
1: Yeah, so you see with your eyes but you also see with your emotions and mm-hmm. you see with your memory and you see with your biases. These these actually affect what you see. Like you say Robert, it's not just an, a, a totally neutral Device taking pictures of things and recording different light levels at each pixel spot
0: yeah I'm instantly reminded of times that I've looked at say uh, you know a, a 3d image uh, one of these uh, what were they called they, they had whole books off of them, and you had to sort of stare the magic at them. eye yeah, the magic eye books. Uh-huh. And uh some of those I could see fairly easily, but others I would just stare at and stare at, and then you reach a point where you're like, Do I see it? I think maybe I see it. <laughs> <laughs> I kinda wanna stop staring at it, but maybe I see it. Um maybe this means there's something wrong with my brain, but I was never able to see those things. Yeah. Well, this could be something we explore in a future episode. Like why why do some people see the magic eye things more uh, more readily than others? Um or is it – maybe it's all a hoax. Maybe there's there's nothing there. <laughs> but if you stare at it long enough and people are expecting you and priming you to see these images, then uh-huh. you eventually say, yes, it's a tiger, clearly.
1: The emperor has no clothes. The magic eye <laughs> is fake. There is no tiger. It's all just gibberish. Everybody's like, oh, yes, yes, I see the fleas.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean I've also had that situation with uh, – I mean I'm, I'm being a, a little uh, glib here about the, the magic eye. But I, I've had that situation with – uh, the attempt to observe something supernatural the, like the, the the desire to say see a spaceship oh you know yeah. as a kid like look up at the stars and and maybe you know you're afraid to see something but you also you just want to see something mm-hmm. staring into the woods and hoping to see a ghost that kind of thing and uh, i never did see anything of that nature um in, in either case but there's this you can feel this straining at time like like do I see something? Do I see something? Like it, almost like you're pushing yourself up to that line mm-hmm. of telling yourself you see something. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, whether you're willing to actually cross that line, uh, you know, or not. Uh, but it's not. But I don't think that line is necessarily a situation of today I shall make something up. Right. Today I will, sh- will create the story of how I saw a UFO. I feel like that's a line that we, that's, that's, we sometimes creep up to. Oh yeah. And then suddenly you're standing on the other side of
1: it. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like uh it's like listening for the sounds of ghosts whispering in an echoey cathedral. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you're you might not be likely to hear that if you just stand there listening, but if you're trying to hear ghosts speaking in a cathedral, you You might not think that you're making it up, but you will be sensitive to kind of anomalous random pops and sounds that you can apply your cognitive filters to and make something out of,
0: yeah, and we've discussed before in the show how you know we've already talked how the the brain is sort of filling in the blanks of vision, mm. and when we are presented with limited stimuli, be it auditory or visual, uh, the brain can kind of create uh patterns where mm-hmm. there are no patterns. It can create a voice where there is no voice, a sound where there is no voice. And and ultimately, you're talking about astronomical data that is limited visual stimuli. That's right. But then
1: again, I I, I also don't want to go over the edge and be too dismissive because you've got a lot of reports over the years, yeah. a lot of reports. Yeah, undeniable.
0: And uh, again, getting back to that, that very important point that whatever it is, if, we're just, if we were just to assume... Yes, there is, was an ashen light on Venus. Mm -hmm. Like you said, it is clearly not observable all the time. So it's not something that can be as rigorously tested as, say, the, the idea of canals on Mars, which we'll get to in a bit. Right. So if it does
1: exist, I think we should transition to talk about if it does exist, what could explain it? What would match the descriptions people see? What kind of light could be shining off of the nighttime side of Venus? Uh, and I think clearly, clearly the best explanation for the ashen light comes to us from the Bavarian astronomer and physician Franz von Paula Grothausen. Uh, from, he lived from 1774 to 1852. And he was – you know, it seems to me he wasn't a dummy. Mm-hmm. But he was – obsessed with space aliens
0: oh yeah he was he was the real deal uh he was a, a major contributor of the day to fields of urology and lithotripsy, which is uh, the treatment and removal of gallstones bezoars and kidney stones nice uh, we we discussed all three of these on our stone of madness episode that uh-huh. we did uh, a few years back uh, so he developed key technologies that helped make bladder stone removal safer and less likely to result in the horrible death of the patient. As we discussed in that uh, Stone of Madness episode, not only were kidney stones uh, painful ordeals, but the the methods of treating and removing them Ugh. that they had in the old days were just barbaric. Uh, so uh, there was a, a very high mortality rate for surgical intervention. And Groythausen helped change that. He helped establish the technologies that allowed the, uh, uh, the, the these fields to evolve and uh, for people to, uh, to to engage in the treatment of of, of various stones without uh, <laughs> without facing down death quite as often. Right. So um, so real physician, not a dummy. Yeah, not a dummy. He was highly influential in his field during his life. He went on to write hundreds of scientific articles and a number of books that covered various topics in the field of natural sciences. So he we, you know he was something of a, a Renaissance man in that regard, and he was he was a legit astronomer. Yeah, he became professor of astronomy at the University of Munich in 1826. So uh-huh. again, b- very bright guy, uh, no mere amateur. He didn't just pick up a telescope and say, "Hey, I see the ashen light. I'm going to write a book about it." Uh, he knew what he was talking about. But yeah. at the same time, I, I think it could definitely be argued that he he engaged with. Uh, with astronomy, with a certain imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, nothing wrong with imagination, but
1: you, you should remember the difference between imagination and good theory.
0: Yeah. So for starters, uh, he believed Earth's moon was habitable, which is not a crazy thing to, to think. There are people today who think that, that yes, given appropriate technology, we could live on the moon. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it certainly wasn't all that unusual back then. A lot of people right. thought stuff like this.
0: But what's more, he also identified what he took to be structures on the moon. Uh, he thought uh, he observed a vast city and he even went ahead and, and called it Volverk. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that a Kraftwerk album? <laughs> it could be. It could also be uh, a great uh, name for a metal band. So, uh-huh. There you go. We've already hit another uh, possible suggestion there. So again, he's, uh, he's, he's not a nobody. He's making this, this, uh, this, this claim. And so if
1: he says there are cities on the moon, even one called Valverk. People, people take
0: this seriously, right? Yeah, they took, right? they, they took notice. There's a certain amount of sensation ensued. Uh, I mean, cities on the moon, right? Yeah. Uh, so the, no, the notion resonated through the media of the day, through the culture of the day, influencing the literary world, and, and not just early sci-fi. Uh, it, it laid the seeds for uh, the 19th and uh, 20th century telescope sightings of canals on Mars, uh, which we'll discuss more in a bit, uh, which you know greatly influenced our perception of the red planet and continues to sort of color our, our perception and expectation of the planet Mars. Yeah. Uh, It also, uh, again, influenced uh, literature. Uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson uh, wrote of, uh, of these lunar cities in his poem, Timbuktu. Oh, cool. He wrote, I saw the smallest grain that dappled the dark earth, the indistinctest atom in deep air, the moon's white cities, and the opal width of her small glowing lakes, her silver heights unvisited with dew of vagrant cloud and the unsounded, undescended depth of her black hollows.
1: That's good stuff, man. Yeah. Tennyson is not usually one of my favorite poets, but I like that.
0: Well, yeah, you you inject a little sci-fi and uh, (laughs) it's a a whole uh, different kettle of fish, right? I should also point out that Gruthausen, uh, you know, it, it wasn't all just cities on the moon uh, in terms of his astronomical contributions. He also suggested uh, that lunar craters were caused by meteorite strikes, which is reasonable.
1: right? Uh, so – but we should get to his explanation for the ashen light. Yes. Which is fantastic. So this is quoted and discussed in the book Atlas of Venus by Peter Cattermole and Patrick Moore from Cambridge University Press. And so they're writing about uh, Gruthausen. I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, but that's the closest I can do. Gruthausen, uh, his opinions on the ashen light of Venus. And so apparently Gruthausen noticed that astronomers had claimed to see the light in 1759 and then again in 1806, which means that the main previous sightings in his lifetime were separated by 47 Earth years, which is 76 Venus years. And Gruthausen wrote, quote, We can assume that some Venusian, Alexander, or Napoleon then attained universal power. If we estimate that the ordinary life of an inhabitant of Venus lasts 130 Venusian years, which amounts to 80 Earth years, the reign of an emperor of Venus might well last for 76 Venusian years. The observed appearance is evidently the result of a general festival illumination in honor of the ascension of a new emperor to the throne of the planet." (laughs)
0: <laughs> what do you think? Thumbs uh, up, thumbs down, Robert? I'm, I'm going to have to give a thumbs down to that. that oh, I mean, why? Assu- I mean, assuming he wasn't just joking around. If, mm-hmm. if he's presenting this as is uh, anything close to a possible explanation, then uh-huh. it, it is a bit ridiculous. It's there's so many, so many leaps of faith one has to take there.
1: I think that's. That's a terrible explanation even if you think there's life on the surface of Venus because mm-hmm. how would you be timing out the coronation process? Like, uh, yeah,
0: you're, you're making so many assumptions about <laughs> uh, about life on Venus. Uh, he also later suggested that the ashen light
1: might be due to Venusian slash-and-burn agriculture in which farmers of Venus would burn down these huge stretches of jungle in order to clear the land for tilling and planting – Quote, large migrations of people would be prevented so that possible wars would be avoided by abolishing the reason for them. Thus, the race would be kept united.
0: Well, I don't know. That feels a little more reasonable. I mean, really, I guess in both cases, what he's essentially doing is reasonable. He's saying, how would I explain this light on Venus and in both cases he's assuming that there is uh, some sort of intelligent life form mm-hmm. what do we do on our planet and then how might i model behavior on the other side
1: yeah if if the dark side of earth is shining what causes that right. well it's probably some huge illumination for some festival or it's agricultural burning
0: right it can't be just the light of cities because uh, then it would be more stationary it wouldn't be uh, this it wouldn't have this this frequency to it right uh, and so all this stuff
1: it It sounds kooky to us, but it's not in principle as kooky as it sounds because, Robert, as you mentioned a minute ago, lots of people used to believe that there were visible civilizations on the surfaces of other rocky planets in the solar system. Uh, We've talked before about the American author and astronomer Percival Lowell. You know, he comes to mind who around the turn of the 20th century, he was writing about the supposed canals of Mars, which we talked about. Uh, He thought that the canals of Mars were evidence of the handiwork of Martian civilization. Now, of course, later it was discovered that these objects. Observations that people thought were canals on the surface of Mars were illusions, and Mars does not have canals.
0: Yeah, they were actually first observed in 1877, and then confirmed, uh, if you will, by various dedicated astronomers around the world. So uh, this is something that Carl Sagan actually uh, wrote a little bit about in the Demon Haunted World, uh-huh. uh, his his book that uh, you know essentially about uh, science communication mm-hmm. and the struggle uh, between uh, uh, you know scientific literacy and uh, Uh, and our susceptibility to everything from conspiracy theory to pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. He wrote, "...a network of single and double straight lines was reported crisscrossing the Martian surface and with such uncanny geometrical regularity that they could only be of intelligent origin. Evocative conclusions were drawn about a parched and dying planet populated by an older and wiser technical civilization dedicated to conservation of water resources. (laughs) So hundreds of canals were actually mapped and named. Uh, But but just as with the ashen light, there were no photos. This was all based on observation through telescopes. Most astronomers did not See them, but some did, and Sagan, Sagan suggests that you know it, it might have even been more of a you know perceptual delusion, right? But uh, but the, one of the key differences here is that canals on Mars—that's something that you can keep looking for, right? Uh, unless you're rolling out some elaborate. Uh, explanation about canals disappearing or being hidden by secretive Martians, they're going to remain there it should be and f- you can look for them. Yeah, it should be a fixed feature of the surface. Right. So as our observation abilities improved, uh, we found that they did not exist. When uh, Mariner 9 orbited the planet in 1971, uh, and Sagan was an experimenter uh, for that uh, mission, he said there were, of course, no canals at all. And nobody was surprised by this by that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... But again, this was a perfectly testable situation, and the science uh, corrected our expectations and understanding of the surface of Mars. And now we understand, as we've discussed in the past, we understand more about the surface of Mars than we do about the the, the bottom of uh, Earth's oceans.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so th- that's a fortunate situation where this misconception could be cleared up, like you say. But as you implied, the problem with the light on Venus is that it is observed to be infrequent and difficult to detect, very mm-hmm. faint, and it's not always there. So this makes it harder to verify or disconfirm through experimentation. Right. Now, as far as, uh, as the idea of life on Venus, we actually just did a recent episode on the possible existence of life on Venus. But of course, as we know, if it were to exist, it would not take the form of a surface-dwelling agricultural civilization. Uh, the surface of Venus has an average temperature of over 450 degrees Celsius or over 850 degrees Fahrenheit. And that makes complex life pretty much impossible. Mm. If, if life were to exist on Venus, astrobiologists generally think that it would consist of microorganisms, living dispersed in vapor droplets in the clouds of the upper Venusian atmosphere, higher up where it's cooler. So I guess we should get back to the question of the ashen light. Is the ashen light like the canals of Mars? Is it just an observer illusion? And if not, what is the real cause? What could really make the nighttime side of Venus glow?
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will continue. All right, we're back.
1: So I think it's time to turn to a paper by William Sheehan, Klaus Brasch, Dale Cruikshank, and Richard Baum from the Journal of the British Astronomical Association in 2014. And the paper is called The Ashen Light of Venus, The Oldest Unsolved Solar System Mystery. And this paper tried to take a look at the ashen light to determine if it's real and if it is real, what could explain it. So they point out that many of the observations of the ashen light are very likely illusory based on optical illusions or inadequate equipment, poor telescopes, all that stuff. But really the question is not are some of the observations of the ashen light illusory. Obviously some of them are, but are all of them illusory or is there there's something real to it? And there's a problem they identify in that the term ashen light apparently appears to refer to at least three different kinds of observation scenarios. So one of them is you've got the dark side of Venus and it appears paler or the same brightness but a different color or darker against a bright twilight or daylight background. And then another type of observation is the planet is observed near inferior conjunction. Remember, that's when Venus, Earth, and the Sun line up with Venus and Earth on the same side of the Sun. So we're near that. And uh, they see the planet against a bright sky or in daylight. And the extension of the horns of the crescent planet seem to go all the way around the planet and form a bright ring. And they say this is probably due to scattering of sunlight from the planet's atmosphere. And then third, finally, there's the true ashen light in which the dark side of the planet appears as a brighter glow against a darker
0: background sky. And it's that third category we're going to be most interested in here. Right. Because though, that is that is the true ashen light.
1: Yes. Uh, though all three categories – are met by various observations around the year. So so the, they take a look at all of them, but the, the third one is considered the true ash and light. And given the different uses for the term, obviously it can be hard to nail down an explanation that fits them all perfectly. I mean, this goes back to our Will of the Wisp episode. Like if you're trying to say, okay, if people really did see something, what's the best material explanation for it? You've got a problem in that the sightings are so different in the way they're described.
0: Yeah, they range from the, the original ash and light to these are descriptions of something that's more rusty mm-hmm. and, uh, and sort of uh, yeah, the, the color of dried blood.
1: Mm-hmm. But there have been plenty of explanations proposed over the years. So, for example, how about the idea of Earthshine? Like is light reflecting off of Earth and then bouncing to Venus so that we can occasionally occasionally see the light bouncing off of Earth reflected from the surface of Venus at night? Uh, the authors say no. Many calculations have been done and found Earthshine to be much, much too weak to explain the observations. But pe- people have tried to reason this way. One explanation along these lines was offered by a guy named Godfrey Sykes who apparently worked for Percival Lowell, uh, you know, Percival Lowell of the Canals of Mars fame. And Godfrey Sykes thought that Venus was tidally locked with the sun, which would mean that one – the same side of it was always facing inward toward the sun and that its dark side, which always faced away from the sun, would be completely covered in a hemisphere of ice. And this ice being highly reflective would reflect light from the Earth and other planets and stars and all all that. All that light coming into the dark side of Venus would reflect off of the ice, the ice sheet on that side of the planet back out into space, and thus we would see that kind of shine. Obviously, this is wrong for, you know, clear reasons because we now know that Venus is too hot for liquid water, let alone ice.
0: All right. Well, what else do we have? Uh, people have proposed lightning. How about lightning? Well, that makes sense. So we have lightning on our world and mm-hmm. it certainly can light up the sky.
1: Yeah, there's actually long been a question of whether there's lightning in the clouds of Venus and if so, how much. And there does appear to be some evidence for lightning on Venus including these uh, what are called low-frequency, quote, Whistler waves that are <laughs> detected in the Venusian atmosphere. Uh, like, for example, they were detected by the Venus Express vehicle. But astronomers have also largely ruled out the lightning explanation because the lightning would just just be too faint to be seen on Earth. So the authors of this paper write, quote, the auroral and lightning theories have both been eliminated because though visible spectrum nightside air glow on Venus was discovered by the Venera 9 and 10 spacecraft and lightning has also been confirmed from spacecraft observations, the illumination they produce is orders of magnitude too faint to be detectable with the eye from Earth. So it's not just a little bit too faint. It would be way too faint. Okay,
0: And likewise, that means that whatever is occurring, uh, if it's occurring – uh, is uh is substantial enough that it is it is uh orders of magnitude beyond what mere lightning activity or auroral activity would consist of
1: right for us to be seeing it with the eye and telescopes from earth now you've got a couple of remaining hypotheses, one of them is infrared thermal emission from the night side. We know that the surface and lower atmosphere of Venus are red hot, and sheehan at all right quote. Since the absorption and light scattering by sulfuric acid aerosols in Venus' atmosphere are weak at visible and near-infrared wavelengths, a number of authors have proposed that, at least in principle, the lower atmosphere from 50 kilometers down to the surface might produce a glow that, for a suitably dark-adapted observer under the right atmospheric conditions both on Venus and the Earth, may be dimly perceived at visual wavelengths. All right. So maybe the planet is so hot it's glowing in a way that the atmosphere does not appropriately scatter the light and the light comes through to us. And in their article, Abel and Lawrence write about this idea. Uh, they write that uh, apparently the thick atmosphere occasionally thins in places, allowing the hot surface to be seen. Quote, the problem is that this would only be visible in the infrared part of the spectrum, well beyond the threshold of the human eye. Uh-huh. So infrared heat is is below the frequency of the visual band of the, the electromagnetic spectrum. And uh, Sheehan and co-authors write, quote, thermal emission of a body at Venus temperature reaches its peak value at about 3.95 micrometers wavelength, which is invisible to the eye, and decreases very rapidly towards shorter wavelengths that the eye can detect. The longest wavelength visible to the human eye is about 0.7 micrometers. Using Planck's law, we calculate that wind Venus is very near inferior conjunction when at just a few degrees of separation from the sun, the intensity of the heat emission at 0.7 micrometers is some 30,000 times weaker than the brightness of the sunlit sky. So the lowest possible frequency of light that could feasibly be seen by the human eye, the the lowest frequency that's visible to us, is produced at far too weak an intensity on an object of the temperature of Venus compared to the sky around it. So yes, Venus is very hot but not hot enough to glow in a way that we could see from Earth with the naked eye through through a telescope lens.
0: All right, so it has to be something else.
1: Right. Yeah, so it can't be the planet glowing from heat. So what's left? Pretty much just one hypothesis, and that's the hypothesis of oxygen emission. So in 1967, the Mariner 5 spacecraft did an early flyby of Venus and detected what was believed to be an ultraviolet, quote, night air glow on the dark limb of the planet. So there was a nighttime – on the night side of the planet, the atmosphere was glowing slightly. And scientists at the time thought that this night glow on the dark side of the Venus might be due to chemical reactions in the atmosphere or possibly due to the atmosphere being bombarded by charged particles from the sun. And then later, the Mariner 10 vehicle did another Venus flyby in 1974 and it also found both a daytime and nighttime air glow around Venus. Venus, and it was found to be 10 times brighter than had been predicted. So this sounds really promising, right?
0: Yeah, and this is, this is a perfectly reasonable uh, scientific explanation for what could be occurring.
1: Yeah, exactly. So at the time, people thought that the problem of the ashen light maybe was solved. So one version of the chemistry explanation from oxygen emission goes like this. You've got UV radiation from the sun, also ions, charged particles, flying out from the sun. And, and this UV radiation and other stuff hits particles in the upper atmosphere of Venus. And the atmosphere of Venus is made, made up mostly of carbon dioxide, which contains one carbon atom and two oxygen atoms. And when the solar bombardment hits these carbon dioxide molecules, it splits them in two. And what it leaves in their wake when when they get split up is you get a carbon monoxide molecule, which has one oxygen atom, one carbon atom, and then you get a single isolated oxygen atom. And single isolated oxygen atoms are not happy. They are (laughs) lonely. They don't want to be out on their own. And they tend to recombine into other molecules, in this case Combining with other free oxygen atoms to form O2, two oxygen atoms together in a molecule. And when this combination happens, the atoms emit photons of light in the visible spectrum. It's often described as a green light. And apparently this has been observed with instruments, like apparently the Keck 1 telescope in Hawaii has previously spotted green light in the atmosphere of Venus, which is consistent with the light that would be emitted by free oxygen atoms combining to form O2 in in the Venusian atmosphere. And that light was apparently also observed by the Soviet spacecraft, Venera 9 and Venera 10. And what's more, this theory could help explain Why there are some years when so many observers claim to see the light and other years in which nobody can find it? Because this would depend on the atmosphere of Venus being bombarded by the sun. So variations in solar activity could explain variations in the emissions due to atmospheric chemistry on Venus. Like when the sun is hitting the planet hardest, the oxygen emission becomes the strongest.
0: Well, this sounds like a pretty strong theory. Yeah, right? it, it does. It, so far, at least. So, but is it is it accepted? Is this uh, is this anywhere near accepted?
1: Unfortunately, not. The authors conclude that while this this theory probably has the best chance of being correct. Ultimately, they decide it probably is not the correct explanation. Ah. So they decided to investigate the validity of the oxygen emission hypothesis in the spring of 2012. And they used visual observation and CCD or charge-coupled device recorded imagery uh, of with different telescopes and different filters. And observing visually, there were occasions where they thought maybe they saw the ashen light when they looked at Venus in 2012. The authors actually quote Johann Schroeder saying – it had the texture of thought.
0: Oh, well that's it that's a that sounds a lot like I'm making it up. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> well no, I mean I think that's what they're saying. Yeah. It's like they're sitting there looking at it mm-hmm. and they think maybe they can see it, but they get the sensation that maybe they're seeing with with their mind yeah. as much as seeing with their eyes. Yeah, this
0: is uh, this is staring at the uh the, the, the magic eye image. This is staring into the woods and trying to convince yourself you see something.
1: Yeah. But of course, the authors here aren't aren't just trying to go by their own perceptions. Mm-hmm. They want to use neutral imagery to see if they can capture this somehow. So they used a special filter for green light, and with that special filter, they were able to detect a glow that could be imaged. I've actually got an image here uh, with a very creepy looking crescent and and some green light. I don't know if you can see that, Robert.
0: It's the yeah, middle yeah. one here. Yeah, that 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 is that is creepy looking.
1: But the authors also used some planet simulation comparisons to establish that the red and green ashen light perceptions that they thought they saw and that were imaged were probably due to scattered light from the illuminated to the unilluminated side. And there was no actual ashen light detected Another big problem I'm thinking about here, most of the astronomers who have reported seeing the ashen light over the past three centuries have not had this kind of equipment. You know, with, with the equipment available in the past, it seems highly possible that observers would not likely have been able to see this emission from O2 formation. So it's not that there is no light coming off of Venus from from the uh, chemistry of the atmosphere, that it does appear to be coming off of Venus. The question is, would it have ever been bright enough for people with telescopes hundreds of years ago to see? And the answer looks like probably not.
0: It's kind of like staring across a, a great lake, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe you can distantly see the distantly see the other side and then if you if you're trying to figure out if you can see people or not mm-hmm. you know and then if you if you investigate you, you you can later find out oh yeah there are people on the other side mm-hmm. but uh, it's it's a far different thing than being able to actually see them from your shore
1: yeah so ultimately, the authors conclude that though they don 't know for sure, the most sensible explanation at this point is unfortunately the illusion hypothesis mm-hmm. that despite the many reports over the years by by very respected astronomers, the phenomenon is most likely due to observer error and sort of optical artifacts from imperfect telescopes and there 's an example they give in in their paper in the early 1990s there's a, there was a German astronomy writer named Daniel Fischer who produced an example of what he thought at the time was a directly captured digital image of the ashen light with a charge-coupled device, you know, like a digital camera. Uh, Unfortunately, it now seems clear that the image is actually just a case of what's known as filter leakage. Ah. And Fisher himself has accepted the fact that the image is is not a real image of the ashen light and has actually come to strongly doubt the existence of the ashen light. So – The reasons he gives are there are no good direct images of it captured by a neutral device. And then he he says, quote, just as amateur planetary imagers have started getting really good, reports have dwindled. Mm -hmm. This is what we talked about earlier. It's kind of like you notice how as soon as cell phone cameras are everywhere, suddenly Bigfoot sightings and UFO sightings drastically drop off. Yeah, exactly. It seems like just as people should be really having the ability to capture this image on a neutral recording device, suddenly people aren't seeing it nearly as much as they used to. Uh, and so Fisher actually now thinks that the phenomenon is fringe science and calls it quote the Loch Ness monster of astronomy. Uh-huh. Now I don't think it's that bad because it's <laughs> obvi- it's not a monster. There's no reason that you you shouldn't expect to to find some kind of strange chemically produced light on the dark side of a planet, right? That's perfectly plausible. Right. The question is just were people really seeing it or was it all tricks of the eye and tricks
0: of the mind? And certainly the more it became a mystery too, right? It has yeah. this appeal. Like you, the mere fact that we're talking about it uh, is, is, uh, is evidence of this, you know? I mean it's yeah. the, the ashen light of Venus. Who, who doesn't want that to be real? Who doesn't want to, to glimpse that and partake of the mystery as well?
1: Yeah, exactly. So ultimately, the authors of the paper conclude, quote, none of the putative images of the actual ashen light can be regarded as convincing. They appear to be due to filter leakage, crescent glare, and excessive image processing used to bring out dark side detail. And yet, despite their doubts, they say it's still possible that the ashen light does exist despite their inability to detect it. One possible explanation could be that maybe it's only during extraordinary solar events such as like coronal mass ejections – because that would provide extra bombardment of the planet Venus enough that its atmosphere really has a lot of oxygen emission going on, and that oxygen emission spectrum can be seen from Earth only during those times when the planet is hit with really strong solar
0: radiation. Well, that that makes sense. In a, in a, in a sense, it would be uh, the echo of a major solar anomaly.
1: Yeah, exactly. They, they don't mention whether... Uh, well because we know about we know about solar activity in the past so they don't mention trying to line up observations of it in the past with what the sun was doing at the time i wonder if somebody tried to do a a correlation analysis there if they would find anything yeah
0: that seems like the the logical next step doesn't it
1: but they write at the end, quote, For the time being, we can say no more. The ashen light cannot yet be laid to rest, though inevitably it becomes a little harder to believe in with each passing elongation. It might finally transpire that the longest-standing mystery in solar system astronomy is nothing more than a stubborn illusion. But in the meantime, the observer who enjoys a challenge is encouraged to remain on the qui vive, or on the alert. So here's my – by the way, I had a crazy idea okay. on float. Here's my crazy question linking our two Venus episodes. First of all, I do want to say I accept their, their uh, conclusion that by far the most reasonable explanation at this point seems to be observer error. But if it is real, what if there is microbial life in the clouds of Venus? And if there is, what if it's bioluminescent? How do you like that? Yeah. So, like, if the ashen light is real and it's the glowing equivalent of periodic algal blooms in the clouds on the hothouse planet. So, uh, yeah, I wonder about that. Astrobiologists, astronomers, planetary scientists, tell me why this is wrong.
0: Well, I mean, the, the, the one idea that comes to mind here is that it, it would have to be pretty intense during these flare-ups. It would have to be, again, an order of, orders of magnitude above what mere lightning or auroral activity would consist of. Correct. Uh, and it's – I mean, it's difficult to. I mean, we've all seen terrific lightning storms. We've seen, uh, uh, you know, the the Aurora Borealis, at least in uh, you know in, images of it, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's it's awe inspiring and also challenging to imagine some sort of biological phenomena occurring uh, of the same caliber, you yeah. know. But but then again, uh, I mean.
1: It's a long shot, but maybe yeah. yeah. Somebody at least, if you if you know what kind of spectra that a bioluminescent organism in a cloud could produce, uh, uh, do the math. What does that? Is it possible?
0: I mean, it kind of matches up really with the ideas of uh, like coronations and uh, and wars and slash and, and burn agriculture because what are these but um, but but infrequent bursts of activity that line up with uh, biological activity on our planet. Mm-hmm. So it, it, this could be, yeah, the the case of an intense season of mating, or even some sort of essentially a war. You know, I'm thinking about <laughs> the way that that uh, different uh, uh, varieties of coral wage wars against each other for dominance, and mm. there's just um, the and uh, the uh, you know the death that takes place at the the borders between the two. Uh, maybe the ashen light is that. Sort of phenomena—the you know, two different uh, rival species of uh, of bioluminescent uh, organisms uh, clashing—you uh, know, micro microbial war in the Venusian clouds. That's a
1: good. That's a good story. I like that one. Yeah. Well,
0: here's another thing I want to
1: know: Do we have any astronomers in, out there among you all in the audience who have seen the ashen light? Do you think you've seen it? If you've seen it. Uh, do you think it's likely you could have been mistaken? Are there reasons you have for thinking you were not mistaken? Uh, We would like to hear about this.
0: Yeah, and anybody else who has any stories about uh, attempting to see something and that that curious mindset that we're talking about where you're, you're sort of straining to see something you don't see or hear something you can't hear and what it's like to sort of creep your way up towards that line.
1: Yeah, it's always shocking what our brains are capable of. Yeah. Can't trust them.
0: You can't. You can't, but it's all we have. <laughs> I mean, it's not all we have. We have science. That's the, 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 yeah. the uh, one of the the, uh, the key arguments here is that we do have uh, scientific inquiry. We mm. have uh, uh, the ability to observe and record data.
1: That should be. A, that's a great pro-science slogan. Science
0: better than your brain. That's right. I mean, created by our brain, but uh, but but so much better at tackling problems like this.
1: Agreed, a hundred percent. Well, uh, I. I think that does it for today, but this has been fun, Robert.
0: Yeah, yeah. Perhaps we'll return to Venus in the future. Uh, For the time being, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes of the podcast, including those past uh, episodes on Venus, including that Will of the Wisp episode, and social media links. If you want to find out what we're doing on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, you want to see if we have some sort of a live tour in the works, there will be a tab up there for that.
1: Huge thank you, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to let us know if you've seen The Ashen Light or looked for it and not seen it, to let us know uh, uh, a topic you think maybe we should cover in the future, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, tell us who you are. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.